in this crazy 21st century in which we're living, the most available and exciting practice to me is this notion of Tantra, of being able to be with anything and immediately go to its fundamental nature. Welcome to Dale Borglum's Healing at the Edge. We are very happy to share with you Dale's profound insight and open heart. Please go to BeHereNowNetwork.com slash Dale to support this podcast. Welcome, everyone. Today, I have put together a talk that I'm really happy about. It's called The Tantra of Delight wonder and astonishment delight wonder and astonishment and i'm going to base this basically on all my experience with tantra but also two particular books that go into an ancient hindu tantric text from the the shiva tradition in kashmir northern india there's a book called zen flesh zen bones it was a classic back in the day by a, a guy named Paul Reps, and there's a section in the book in the book called Centering, where he talks about these 112 slogans from this ancient text, the Vijnana Bhairava, which are instructions from Shiva to the goddess how to immediately awaken. The other book from which I kind of stole the title is the book of the, the Yoga of Delight, Wonder, and Astonishment, translated by Jai Davis Singh. So in many spiritual practices, particularly in Tibetan Buddhism, there are developmental stages where we go from mindfulness to emptiness or compassion to energy itself. And in these three yanas or these three stages, we deal with the way we're, we get caught, the way we're stuck in three developmental ways. So in the first stage, which I think we're pretty much all familiar with, it with mindfulness practice, Vipassana practice, we become aware of something and we replace it with something wholesome. We become aware of fear, we become aware of anger, and through awareness, we replace fear with calmness, we replace anger with kindness, etc. Then we move on to the compassion stage. When we begin to see difficult emotions in the compassion stage, we gradually transform them by having compassion for the person, whether it's you or somebody else, who's feeling caught in the emotion. But finally, we get to the tantric stage where we instantaneously transmute difficult experiences into their sacred nature. We we reveal that each emotion, each experience can be digested, can be devoured in a way that we will explain. We will go into talking about what we're meaning with the, these words, devouring emotions, digesting emotions. This more advanced practice does depend to some certain extent on you having, me having, developed some basic ability to be mindful, even when things are getting difficult, and to have some open-heartedness in relationship to what we're doing. 
But it's easy to get stuck in these more initial stages of practice where I'm just working with mindfulness, working with loving kindness all the time. And for me, in this crazy 21st century in which we're living, the most available and exciting practice to me is this notion of Tantra, of being able to be with anything and immediately go to its fundamental nature. I'd like to begin then by talking about how we get there in the first place. The third Karmapa, a great Tibetan teacher said, in the moment of love, the empty essence nakedly dawns. What he's saying here is that emptiness is love. It's a kind of a radical statement. Emptiness is love. We often think of love as fullness and richness and juiciness. But what's being said is when we're empty of grasping, when we're empty, particularly of the notion of grasping at me, who's got to be a loving person, then love nakedly arises. That what's preventing love is I, me, mine, who has to take care of myself and is judging myself, judging other people. The way to find this love is twofold. There's devotion upward and there's compassion outward. Devotion upward to the teacher, to God, to the higher power, to the true self. Whatever it is you have devotion to, whatever it is you love, you invoke, something that doesn't change, something that you trust more than your mind. Can you have devotion to that? And that devotion is really something that cures every obscuration. Devotion is the universal panacea, they say. But also, compassion outward, compassion toward yourself and compassion toward all other beings. And once we have some stability in, first of all, this mindfulness that allows us to be compassionate, and then we have devotion and compassion, that leads to this ability to awaken a, a tantric practice. And by that, we begin to see that all that arises is awakened energy. The world is sacred. We are already awake. And we can go beyond avoiding difficulty and self-improvement. Pain is a part of life and not a mistake. Everything is grace. We can let go of conceptualizing, trusting chaos, having an intimate relationship with our experience. All is sacred, so we don't need to feel we need to defend ourselves against the attacks from the world. So the great Christian mystic, Meister Eckhart, he says, the eye with which I see God is the same eye with which God sees me. He said, to be full of things is to be empty of God. To be empty of things is to be full of God. So he's very clearly talking about this tantric path. That when we become empty, when there's no grasping, that we become full of God. First of all, we were talking about devotion and compassion. And usually in devotion and compassion, there's the feeling of, I am devoted to the guru. I'm devoted to God. I'm devoted to the teacher. I'm devoted to the lineage, to the higher power. And I'm feeling compassion for you. I'm feeling compassion for myself. But in the tantric stage, we begin to see that it's not I am devoted to God, but that 
everything is God. I'm who am devoted is God. You who are out there is God. It's like God is at home. And it's we that have gone out for a walk. That in Tantra, we're coming home to the sacred nature of things. In this book, uh, Zen, Zen Flesh, Zen Bones, there are 112 very quick pointings at the tantric nature of things. And throughout the rest of the talk, I am going to be interjecting these one or two line meditations that we're going to do for 10 seconds each. We're going to start right now. The first one is, and I'd ask you to do this, look lovingly on some object in the room. Do not go to another object. Here, in the middle of this object, the blessing. Just look at something, let go of everything else. And in the middle of this object is the blessing. Okay, coming back to the room. A slightly different formulation. See something as if for the first time. Look at something else in the room. See it as if you're seeing it for the very first time. And can you remain in that moment of seeing it for the first time? When other things arise, you're hearing my voice. There's a computer with me flapping my lips and my arms around. All those things are happening. Can you remain in that place of each moment is fresh? One of the gateways into this tantric understanding is not conceptualizing, but being with the arising of experience, almost like you're surfing, right? You're, we're going along, you're hearing my voice, you're the sensations in your body, this thing's happening, that thing's happening. And all of a sudden, something grabs you and you start thinking about it and there's a story. And all of a sudden, you're not there with what's arising. You're one step removed. You're caught back in conceptualization. Maharaji, when asked, what's the best form to worship God? He said, the best form to worship God is every form, right? Every form on your altar, every form on your computer screen right now is the best form. The form that you're looking at right now is the best form to worship God. The beloved can only be everything. Either God is nothing or everything. There's no in-between. It's, it's God is not... A, God can't only be the good stuff, right? So that when we've gone through these preparatory stages of enough mindfulness, enough devotion, dualistic devotion, enough dualistic compassion, we get to the stage then where we begin to be able to catch hold of the first moment of perception rather than naming rest in the feeling of the arising perception, the vibration, non-conceptual experience. Because we've created this foundation of clear embodied mindfulness and abiding compassion and devotion, we have the spaciousness of heart to rest there. Another avenue to resting in this place is to open to grace in every moment seeing no distinction between the mundane and the spiritual. Everything is grace. 
War is grace. Cancer is grace. Life-threatening illness is grace. Falling in love is grace. Falling out of love is grace. Right? As long as we're conceptualizing good, bad, don't want this, don't want that, we're very busy being caught up in the mind. In Hindu Tantra, as many of you know, there are deities such as Kali and Shiva who are quite wrathful. So that instead of seeing God as the, as the kind, comforting, supportive, we can also begin to see God as the difficult. And that really is one of the ways to support this tantric understanding. Maharaji, when I asked him, how should I meditate? I thought he'd say something sexy like, focus on your third eye and think about me. He said, see all women as the mother. See everything as the divine mother. And in Hindu Tantra, it's all the mother. It's Kali, it's Lakshmi, it's Saraswati, it's it's all the forms of the mother. All form, all energy, all matter can be worshipped, can be made love with, actually, if you will. I used to be a yogi. And in, in, in yoga, we suppress, we control what goes into our mouth, what goes out of our mouth, how we breathe, how we eat, how we sleep, how we move. In Tantra, we're not trying to suppress or, or control things because we're seeing it all as God. There's nothing to be repressed because it's all God. The difficult emotions are God. There's something in Hindu thought called sanskaras, the subtle impressions of past actions. And when the emotional energy of some samskaras arise, when they're activated, are we able to hold it gently enough to see that it's nothing but another form of the same divine awareness that manifests all things? Then the energy is subtly digested rather than getting buried again. This is not a cognitive process. One needs to see the story that you're creating, that it's just a story. Digesting emotions in this way, even difficult ones, leads to more aliveness. You can be fully present to what is felt in the moment without judging it. Another way of saying it, we can devour the energy. There's a wonderful poem that I've quoted from in the past by Ram Prasad Sen, Ramakrishna's favorite poet, where he said, Oh, Kali, in this life, either I will devour you or you will devour me. And I vow that it is you that I will devour. So in Tantra, we're going along devouring our life. We're not getting caught in it. We're digesting, devouring energy experience. And then something catches us. We're lost. We're reactive. We're grasping. In that moment, we're being devoured. And beginning to notice that difference in your life when you're devouring energy, when you're devouring emotion, when you're devouring life itself. I just love that notion of devouring life, devouring energy, as opposed to when you're feeling devoured. Often it's very noticeable, but sometimes it's a lot more subtle. Let's try another one of those really short meditations. Feel the consciousness of each person as your own consciousness. Thus, leaving aside concern for self, become each being. Feel the consciousness of each person as your own consciousness. Thus, leaving aside concern for self, become each being. 
It only takes a moment. Mother Teresa talked about seeing Christ in his distressing disguise when she would lift a leper out of the gutter in Calcutta. Everyone is Christ in his distressing disguise, or maybe not a distressing disguise, but everybody is Christ in disguise. Everybody is the mother in disguise. I think it's Wendell Berry or somebody who said, God comes to us disguised as ourselves, which takes it even one level more. Here's another short meditation. Think about somebody that you have some reaction to. When a mood against someone or for someone arises, do not place it on the person in question, but remain centered. Being with even the reaction is also the mother. In Western thought, we have the worldview that there's a solid reality out there. We are individual perceiving devices, perceiving the same fixed reality. This tantric wisdom that came from even pre-Buddhism that we're talking about today says it's the opposite. And this has been proved lately by quantum mechanics that the world is real, but it is internal to consciousness. Everything is a real form of divine consciousness. So Tantra doesn't teach renunciation since the whole world is God. The whole world is consciousness. This tends to encourage us to honor other people. So rather than passively receiving data from out there, we experience life flowing out from us and creating what we're perceiving moment to moment to moment. Tantra versus yoga, two very different ways of relating to our experience. Tantra literally means to weave. We're weaving this notion that it's all sacred into each moment. Yoga teaches gradually eliminating obstacles through control. It teaches suppression with awareness, whereas Tantra is, it's all divine. There's nothing to control. There's nothing to suppress. And Tantra is dangerous if we come to it without the foundation of enough clear awareness, enough clear mindfulness, enough deep compassion. Tantra is indulgence with awareness. And there are many examples of Tantric teachers. I could name a whole list of people who've gotten into an awful lot of trouble by thinking that they can fornicate and drink and and collect money in various ways because it's all Tantra, it's all God. Without the foundation, without this this deep foundation rooted in compassion and this open, non-grasping mind, Tantra is, is pretty tricky. Okay, another short meditation. Wherever your attention alights, at this very point, experience. Okay, 
Tantra believes that there is literally no particle of reality that isn't capable of revealing ecstasy and that everything that exists is full of light and awareness, says Sally Kempton, who writes extensively about Tantra. So that what we're really doing is transmuting obstacles into presence. In yoga, we think of things as obstacles that need to be dealt with. In Tantra, an obstacle itself is the path. The, the stronger the emotion, the, the deeper the anger, the more intense the fear, the greater the opportunity for awakening in that moment. Another short meditation. Wherever your mind is wandering, internally or externally, at this very place, this. Wherever your mind is wandering, this. Even the wandering mind is not separate from the mother. And another one, when vividly aware through some particular sense, keep in this awareness. You're hearing something, you're seeing something. You're wide awake, stay there as things change in that awakeness. So the difference between saying a mantra from a yogic perspective and a tantric perspective is the following. In yoga, we're saying a mantra, God, please show up. Or thank you, God, for showing up. I'm in relationship with you, or I'd like to be in relationship with you. In Tantra, you, the sound of the mantra, and the object and the, the subject, the, the deity in the mantra, they're all the same. The mantra is God. So that when I say Ram, in that moment, God is created in the sound. Ram is not pointing toward God. The sound Ram is not pointing toward the deity Ram. The sound Ram is the deity. And one could easily say that when I say Vladimir Putin, that that sound is also the deity, right? It's harder to see there possibly, but each sound is densely permeated with God's name, with God's presence, if you will. What we've done here is we've created a healing path that I sort of jokingly call the tantric three-step. The first step in healing is you experience something directly and nakedly. Maybe it's a difficult thing. Maybe it's not a difficult thing. But you let go of the story. What does it feel like to be afraid? What does it feel like to be angry? What does it feel like to be in love? Letting go of the narrative about it what does it feel like in your body just to have that feeling rather than fixating on the trigger which leads to the story about the trigger okay so that right now what are you feeling in your body not even making up a story about it and then can you have love and compassion for how you're feeling right now opening your heart this vast empty heart that is so empty of concept that it's full of love and compassion. So full of love and compassion, it's empty of concept. And in that emptiness, in that spaciousness, the sacred nature of what you're feeling is revealed.
you've gone from being aware of something, embodied mindfulness, to opening your heart to it, to coming right into this place of transmuting that into realizing its sacred nature. And being around people like Maharaji or Anandamai or the 16th Karmapa or on and on, they were living in that place where they saw me as sacred. And I saw me as super neurotic, pretty much, right? And the more that they saw me as that, the more I, I began to believe that, that there was something in me that was unchanging and undefiled and whole and holy. Another short meditation. Feel yourself pervading all directions far near. And then another one, devotion frees. F-R-E-E-S, not Z-E. <laughs> devotion frees us. Feel that sense of a moment devotion just transmutes everything instantly. Do we approach devotion from a sense of poverty, which is what we often do in yoga? I'm trying to get somewhere. I'm using devotion as a tool versus in Tantra, we're approaching devotion from a sense of fullness and abundance and richness. I'm sacred and the mantra is sacred and the, the, the deity of the mantra is sacred. And my wandering mind when I'm trying to say the mantra is also sacred. And a couple more of these very short meditations. Interspace, supportless, eternal, still. Interspace. And then the final of these practices, each thing is perceived through knowing. The self shines in space through knowing. Perceive one being as knower and known. Perceive one being as knower and known. And then coming back to the room, in Tantra, we identify with the deities. All, all these deities on my altar, Hanuman and Christ and, and Shiva and Durga and everybody, they're not out there. They're the energies that are in each of us. They are each of us. We are each of them. And there's a wonderful practice called Guru Yoga, where we actually become the deity. The takeaway of this whole talk about Tantra is that it's just a moment away. If you've done some practice in your life and you have cultivated some mindfulness, you've cultivated some compassion and devotion, that we can keep surrendering into this Tantric understanding of the sacred nature of reality, that we can stop fighting the things that we previously were perceiving as obstacles.
that even that is grace. Whatever arises is grace. Whatever arises is a, a pure reflection of the wholeness. The beloved can only be everything. Maharaji said, if you love God, he, she takes care of everything. If you love God, you overcome all impurities. So that this surrendering through love into non-grasping, to me, is a much juicier, accessible path than trying to be a yogi in this crazy world in which we're living. Emails, phone calls, my printer broke down yesterday. I mean, all these things are happening. If I'm trying to be in control of everything and have this perfect life, again and again, it's frustrating. Can we deal with all of that as grace-filled, sacred experience? Let's have some time now for conversation. Hi. Um, haven't seen you in a while. So in the Tantra, when you're saying, you know, everything's divine mother, um, I know you are familiar with Agape's teaching because I'm part of Agape and stuff. And sometimes I know I've heard you talk about like the concerns about we don't want to spiritually bypass. We don't want to like say everything's good when everything isn't good. And I hear you saying we're going to embrace everything we're experiencing as sacred. So if I'm having a tough time, if I'm not feeling well, I'm embracing that as sacred. But could you say a little more maybe about the difference between what you're saying with this and a kind of what might be that sort of hyper positivity where we would say it's all good? Because I don't think you're saying it quite the same thing, right? Right. I never did use the terms good and bad experience. Maybe I did, but if I did, I apologize. So in Tantra, we're going beyond good and bad. It's all sacred. And it is certainly possible to do what Gail was referring to as spiritual bypassing, where you haven't done the foundation and you're trying to get away from the difficult emotions, sensations, and thoughts you're having by let me go meditate, let me be a tantric, let me do this and that, because I don't want to feel what's going on. There's a whole other conversation we could have, and maybe we'll, we should have this sometime soon, about the intertwining and the necessity to work both with psychotherapeutic, psychological, sophisticated understanding of who we are and where we're blocked, and the letting go of all these blocks and realizing our sacred nature. Supposedly right now, there's 63 people in the room who are at all different levels of having their ego identity integrated in a healthy way. And some of the places that I'm really neurotic, you're not, and vice versa. Let's be careful not to use these tantric notions as a way of avoiding places that we're stuck. But one can't really remain in this tantric sacred openness until you've done those foundation practices. So that my sense, I always like to have some tastes of what's out there because I find it very inspiring that if, if I'm going through my day and I'm getting 80 emails and 20 texts and 12 phone calls and my friend's mother died and which is true. My friend's mother died two days ago and somebody else's 
cancer came back a few days ago and all these things are happening. If during that day, I can still have these moments where I rest in, in the sacred nature of things, that I, I have some understanding that cancer and everything is, is part of this divine unfolding without denying the human suffering and complication that's going on. So that most of us, most of the time, are completely identified with and embedded in the human dimension of reality. I'm happy. I'm sad. My body feels good. My body doesn't feel good. I hate the Republicans. I hate the Democrats. Uh, oh, my God, the climate change is going to kill everybody. Let's get on a plane and fly to Chile because it's going to be not safe here. You know, I mean, all these things, there, there's plenty to be reactive to. But can we balance all this human drama with this tantric understanding? And it's a tricky thing to do without a teacher. Traditionally, Tantra is taught with somebody around who can kick your ass when you start getting lost in the enjoyment. I mean, Tantra reveals great joy and ecstasy and bliss. I mean, the, the common perception of Tantra, or one of them at least in the West, is Tantric sex, where you can have a sexual experience that goes far beyond the usual Western, let's get it on kind of sex. And there's the Tantra of eating, and there's the Tantra of taking a walk, and there's the Tantra of going to sleep at night, that done with seeing it as all the mother, the, these qualities that I've talked about, those short meditations, where just in a moment you can go into that fullness, is very compelling, it's very appealing, it's, it's blissful. Are we using the bliss to get away from where we're stuck? Or are we using the bliss as an inspiration, wanting to be there more and more of the time and going back and dealing with where we're stuck? Myself and Ramdas and Jack Cornfield and a lot of other people I know who are highly respected meditation teachers have spent a lot of time in therapy and becoming therapists. And what we're saying here is not going to put any therapist in the room out of business, right? But at, at the same time, having this, this understanding that it's just a moment away is this wholeness. But until you've created the foundation, until you've done enough therapy, until you've cultivated enough embodied mindfulness, uh, enough dualistic relative devotion, relative compassion, you're not going to be able to stay in this tantric understanding for more than a few moments at a time. It's going to pull you back. But having that taste again and again is very inspiring. It's very motivating. I mean, it's like it's. I had the great blessing to go be with Maharaji, to be at his feet, to touch him, to smell his skin. He left his body. At the same time, can I, can I, can you feel that same presence in those short meditations we did when I say, look at something in the room or look at one of the people on your screen right now and see that, rest in that. Maharaji said, once again, the best form to worship God is every form. It's this microphone in front of me. It's. It's the chair you're sitting on. It's the pain in your butt. If you have pain in your butt from being on your chair for the last hour, 
it's it it is a tricky balance. And it's useful to have a therapist or a meditation teacher or somebody who understands Tantra to help you not get too stuck in grasping at the pleasant, pushing away the unpleasant. Ramdas had this line that I really, the more I think about it, I really don't believe it. But he said, if you're son of a bitch and you get enlightened, you'll be an enlightened son of a bitch. But I think it's very hard to get enlightened being a son of a bitch. That being enlightened means approaching other beings, approaching yourself, approaching life from this place of non-judgment and richness and stuff. If you can, if you have some weird kind of personality structure where you don't really care about your personality and all you want is God, maybe it's possible. But we're talking about this developmental path of purification through awareness, through embodiment, through compassion, through devotion, through forgiveness, through gratitude, getting to the point then where Tantra begins to arise rather naturally. Uh, Ramdev? Yes, sir. We've got some questions coming in on the chat. Uh, Dominique asks, is there a connection between Hatha, Yoga, and Tantra? Is it a foundational step like Samatha, or are they completely separate paths? So, as I said before, in Tantra, they often feel that the, that the, the body is a microcosm of the whole universe. And Tantra is a very embodied physical path, if you will. And certainly Hatha Yoga is one of the paths to do that. I think actually traditionally it is one of the main preparations for Tantra. If you are somebody who loves Hatha Yoga and you're opening your body through Hatha Yoga, it probably makes it much easier to approach devotion and God from a place of richness and abundance rather than poverty and need, because the poverty and need is embodied, it's locked in the body. And to the extent we begin to release some of that through yoga or through other physical practices, it, it, it certainly is an aid on the path, but not the only way to do it. Uh, another question, Ramda, on the yeah. chat. Yeah. Uh, Anne uh, asked the following. Uh, babies are so quickly brought into concept, color, number, size, shape. How to represent, how to represent the openness of God to God while learning to walk, talk, following the guidance or rules within their life. It feels like what you are saying is to undo all the concepts that we were raised to learn and to go back to that open wonder and moment-to-moment God that toddlers live in time. So, sorry, that toddlers live in much of the time. Right. Yeah, that's a great question. And Maharaji, for instance, was very childlike. I mean, sometimes he seemed like a tiny little baby. And his his actions would go from one thing to another thing in a very disconnected way. It was not like there were a lot of concepts guiding what he was doing. Although along the way, concepts are very useful. I mean, going back to Gail's question in particular, we need concepts. Concepts bring us into psychotherapy. Concepts bring us into this thing we're doing here together today. There's maybe an intermediate step here where 
we learn to use the mind, but not be attached to the mind. You're going to have to do income taxes, probably most of you. You're going to have to figure out, does your car need to be serviced? You're going to have to figure out a grocery list. And even Maharaji, who didn't have to figure out a grocery list, he did have to figure out a grocery list. He was ordering the food for a whole ashram of people. And he knew exactly what was needed. And he would get eventually to be non-attached to the mind. It's not the mind is going to be empty all of the time. But thoughts, perceptions, emotions are being devoured, being digested. Some scars, the places that we've been holding on from the past as they arise are being digested. It's a path of healing. It's the path of realizing wholeness to the extent that particularly the mother is an enlightened being. The way she holds the baby, the way she nurses the baby, the way she, the sound of her voice, even when the baby's inside of her, her belly is letting the baby know that it's okay. It's all, it's all God. It's all sacred. And to the extent that the mother is wounded and that her mother was wounded and back, 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 then the baby is getting this message that the world's kind of a complicated place. The Buddhists feel that this dimension, this human dimension is the perfect level of friction in which to wake up. Yeah, it would be nice if everybody could have an enlightened mother, but then what's the point of being here, right? You had a mother that was not enlightened. You have some woundedness. There was some slight neglect or not so slight neglect. Maybe you were sick. Maybe she was sick. All those things happened. My earliest memory is getting an electrical shock by putting a, a bobby pin in an electrical outlet. And I had very loving parents, and that really created a certain fear-based relationship with the world, basically. One time I had the blessing of being with a baby who his name was Bryce and his, his birth had gone horribly wrong. He had been oxygen deprived during the birthing process to the point where he had only base brain activity. He couldn't think, he couldn't swallow, he couldn't see, he couldn't hear. He had some slight response to touch. And the, 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 uh, crazy notion was I was supposed to be there to help him die. He was, his parents were friends of a dear friend of mine, Annie Lamott, and she brought me there to help Bryce die. And of course, Bryce didn't need any help, but the idea was I was there to help the marriage survive basically. But every time I go into that house, the first thing I do is I'd go and pick up this baby and I would go into ecstasy. Because he was not being drawn into the world. He was pure consciousness. And just, it was like being with a guru that I was holding in my arms, right? He, he was not seeing anybody. He was not thinking anything. He was not swallowing. He was just, he was just pure consciousness. And it was, it was remarkable. I mean, in a way, it was a lot like being with an enlightened being. And yet each of us have a karma. We're here to, work that through. We're here to learn to digest the samskaras. We're here to learn to devour what we think is impurity and realize that it's all sacred. Uh, Ramda, David has his hand up. And after David's question, we're going to take a short TNP break. Yes, David. Thank you for, uh, for doing this. And, uh, and thank you for taking the question. I, I wrote it in the chat too, which we can ignore. My question is, um, 
I really appreciate on a very deep level what your talk has been in terms of of even the negative experiences, even the stuff that's troubling is also the grace of God. And there's God in that. There's tremendous comfort that comes from that. I think the challenge that I have in embracing that message and really fueling it is, well, where then does the motivation come from to alleviate suffering? Where does the motivation and the drive to correct, in quotes, to correct something that to our human minds is empirically a negative. Somebody is starving, a war is happening. This negative experience in my family, wouldn't it be great if this was able to heal and improve? I think it's so so often the human response to that's wrong, that shouldn't happen, that creates a drive to fix it. And so how does what is the companion teaching then to understanding that certain things are the grace of God but then where does the drive and motivation comes from? Because I think the concern is if you embrace that this is God idea and concept and let's say truth, because I want to, I want to embrace that truth. What then powers the drive to alleviate suffering and to improve an empirically negative situation? The motivation for dealing with things that we think are wrong. Once again, I have been presenting Tantra as a developmental stage coming out of embodied mindfulness leading to compassion, devotion, leading to Tantra. One can see, for instance, there's a war going on in Ukraine. Innocent people are being bombed and tortured and killed and all kinds of things are happening that we don't even want to talk about. And we can be upset by that and be motivated to donate or to agitate or whatever we think is the right thing out of this motivation. Something's wrong. We've got to fix it, right? There is another another path to action. And there's another path that is based in, first of all, beginning to be able to feel suffering in yourself. Just suppose you have a hard time with your own anger, And if you have a hard time with your own anger, you're not able to be aware of that. You're not able to feel what it's like in your body. As soon as you're angry, you blame it on the environment, the person that is, quote, making you angry, unquote. Then it's going to be very difficult for in a balanced way you to be with somebody who's angry or to think about maybe Vladimir Putin who's angry or the soldiers who are raping and pillaging who are angry or maybe they're afraid or whatever emotion they have. Taking the next step, can we have compassion for our own suffering, for the way I get angry, the way I get afraid? And until I can do that, I'm going to be reactive to the the fear and the anger in the world. So suppose I've, I've gone down the path a bit now and I've worked with being able to feel fear in my own body. Usually when fear arises, we fixate on the trigger. We don't actually feel the fear. Fear puts us to sleep. And in English, we say, I am afraid. In Spanish, I have fear. In Tibetan, fear is here. It's We become the emotion. We get lost in it. We train ourselves not to be lost in it. And then through that training, we can have compassion for it. So now... Here I am, and I read about the Ukraine and all these people that are suffering and the people that are perpetrating the suffering, if you will, 
And I'm not lost in my own suffering about such things. And there is this fundamental understanding that's often not talked about that I have an inherent kindness, an inherent goodness, that if I begin to open up, I'm not reacting because I'm angry and upset about things, but I'm, I'm a compassionate being with compassion being spelled with a capital C. So two people can be protesting or two people can be donating. And one of them is angry and upset and the other one is com- compassionate and equanimous and open. And that second person is probably going to be a hell of a lot more effective. In the long run, we think about Gandhi and Nelson Mandela and Abraham Lincoln and people like that who got a lot done, not because they're going around tearing their hair out, but because they were able to feel the suffering of other human beings and they had worked on themselves enough that they were that open. Christ is the representative of that. Buddha is the representative of that. That Buddha said, hatred is not healed by hatred, but by love alone. It's not that by opening up, we become passive. Opening up reveals, uncovers our compassionate nature. And we were talking about compassion as a feeling, but very often compassion as a feeling leads in a very natural way to compassionate action. And in fact, there are three qualities to the awakened mind. One of them is great clarity. Another is emptiness or spaciousness. And the third is naturally rising compassionate activity. So that if we're open, we're going to be compassionate. If we're not open, we can get angry and do things that could look like they're coming from compassion. But compassion really is not an emotion. And you really can't have compassion for the people who are suffering for the Ukrainians if you can't have compassion for the Russians. You can have pity for the Ukrainians and anger at the Russians. But if you're really having compassion, you have to have, it's like a state of being. It's your open heart meeting everything out there. 